Yeah, well, so good to be with you all today. And like I said, coming from the tropical, subtropical land of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to Minnesota, um, I was talking with, with Mary this morning about uh, this morning I got up super early and went for a run and she showed me a lake that I should run around. And um, I opened the door and there was like pelting rain like in my face and like 37 degrees. And I wore shorts. So I was like, I'm determined, I'm gonna do this, right? So I said, I have a little Minnesota blood in me, right? Um, so so, gr so great to be with you today. And, um, and so um, part of the work that I do is not just being a pastor to a congregation, but I also serve with a group called Fresh Expressions US. That's the other hat that I wear, where we go around really to, to churches and to people and to communities around the country and um, basically teach churches how to do church differently how to do church in their communities for a changing world. And, um, and we work with individuals, lots of non-ordained ministers, right? The priesthood of all believers. We equip people to do that kind of ministry in starting church in anything from dog parks to tattoo parlors to your kitchen, uh, kitchen table to those types of things. So it's a really exciting kind of ministry. And I think it kind of goes along with um, why Greg invited me here in the first place. This, this series of uh, unraveling truth that, that you all here at Woodland Hills have been uh, traveling through over the, these last few weeks and months and, and talking about how uh, for many Christians, many Christians, faith has become a thing to abandon. Deconstruction is a big thing that's going on right now. And, and that our faith, even if you grew, maybe grew up in church, has not stood up to scrutiny. Um, well, I think this connects a little bit to my hockey story. So um, a little short story. I, I started playing ice hockey as an adult um, picking it up as an adult because I had been inspired by the wonderful movie, The Mighty Ducks, when I was a child, yes. And so finally, it's never too late to start something. So I started something and lo and behold, uh, made some connections with, made some new friends and got invited to join this men's hockey group that meets, get this, 6 a.m. on Sunday morning. 6 a.m. Sunday morning. So. I'm a pastor, I have a little thing to do on Sunday morning usually. Um, but I'm like, hey, this is a great invitation, a great group, very inviting people. And so I've been connecting. I don't necessarily go every single week. But when I do, uh, there does come a time, I play for maybe about an hour and a half, two hours with a, with a break in there. Um, and I always have to leave early because <laughs> I have to get to my real, you know, my, my gig and take some time in prayer and look over my message and whatnot. So I always like to have to tell the guys, hey, I need to leave early. And there's some other people that have to do that too. But um, this one week, finally, some one of my teammates on the bench was asking, oh, well, Chris got to leave early, you know, so we're going to have to get somebody else to sub and, and you know, play, play right wing. And he's like, where do you have to go? Like, where are you going? Why do you have to leave early? And it was interesting. One of my other teammates interjected and said, well, uh, she probably has a hot brunch date. <laughs> Or, and somebody else is like, no, like, you know, she's probably going to the grocery store or having to be back with family, you know, it's family time, that kind of thing. And what was really interesting was that nobody said, maybe she had to go to church. <laughs> Not a single person. So when I finally revealed the big reveal about where I was going, okay, I have to go to church. Didn't quite reveal that I was like the pastor of the church, but said so I have to go to church. Somebody else replied, well, why on earth, why the expletive, insert your expletive of choice here, would anyone want to do that? And of course we kind of laughed and, you know, jested, but it just made me think about that. It made me think about kind of the, the, the state of culture, society, and, and you know, you've seen this, the statistics show this, if you don't, haven't seen this personally, is that uh, here in, in the United States, it's estimated that uh, by 2050, 52 million new individuals be added to the number of religiously unaffiliated Americans. And, and that in, number increases, the, the nuns, the duns, not like the like holy nuns, but like N-O-N-E-S, the number of people. And, and it's also estimated that by 2070, probably about 30% of the population will identify as Christian. By 2070, 30%. What's also interesting though, is if you look around the world, right? If you look at some Western nations, Western cultures, you see that Europe is like a light year ahead of us as far as secularization. Then you have Canada kind of in the middle and then we're kind of like lagging behind. But if, even if you look to Europe, you see that in Europe, 50% of the people in Europe 
when asked to identify their religious affiliation, they call themselves non-practicing Christians. I didn't know the two words went together, right? (laughs) Non-practicing Christians. And so we see this again and again, that the number of people that are calling themselves Christians or identifying with Jesus continues to decline over the years. And, and sometimes some of those of us that maybe were brought up in church, raised in church, whatever the tradition, you, you, the words come out of your mouth, gone are the days, right? Gone are the days when you couldn't go shopping, when there were things, some people remember, maybe here, raise your hand, remember blue laws? Anybody remember? Like there were laws that you could not do certain things on Sunday. Those of us that are like millennials, like, like Gen Z were like, what? You know, wow, how does that work? But that nobody played sports, that on Sundays things were closed, that was family time. Um, even beyond Sunday, that there were prayer in schools, that, uh, that, that, that there were many, many different practices around our country that took place that were very clearly Christian. And so, you know, now we tend to say things like Sunday sports are the devil, right? Like they take people away from church. We bemoan for the battle of the soul of America. But we seem to be so much more concerned about what we've lost than about what is ahead. For insiders, for those of us that say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a, I am a Christian, um, we, we are in kind of like a state of grief, really, as a, as a people, a state of grief, mourning, anxiety about what is to come. I, I've talked to like churches that are like, well, no youth are here. We don't have anybody under the age of, of 60, um, that, that all these things, like there's a state of grief and mourning. But what's also interesting is that you say for outsiders or people that are on the edge of faith that are kind of like checking out this Christian thing or figuring out what they believe, for outsiders, it looks like Christianity is sinking So why on earth would they get on the sinking ship, right? Like why on earth would they even step on the thing in the first place? But my question for you today, the title of this message is The Great Fall of Christendom. The question is, is Christianity really dying? Or perhaps something else is what's passing away. So today we're gonna talk about this thing called the Great Fall of Christendom. And dare I say Christendom, is not to be confused with Christianity. We're gonna get into that in just a, in just a little bit. But I wanna start off with a poem. Um, I love to look at the history of different things. You know, I hear a story or a fairy tale or whatever, and I wanna know kind of like where it came from and, and that kind of thing. Maybe you're that kind of person too. But um, what's interesting, uh, the, the nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty. Is everybody familiar with Humpty Dumpty? If you're not familiar with Humpty Dumpty, I'm gonna, I'll get you a book or some mother goose, take it home, study it. Like, like it's like the classic like nursery rhyme you learn when you're like, like two years old, three years old. Humpty Dumpty, let's all say it together. We'll have the words up there. Ready? On the count of three, one, two, three. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. You all know it, isn't that fantastic, right? But have you ever wondered what it's actually about? Have you ever thought about what it's actually about? And, and there I say, it's not an egg. Humpty Dumpty is not an egg. So, so that didn't come later. Lewis Carroll, he wrote this book called Through the Looking Glass, Alice in Wonderland and all, that's where he displayed Humpty as an egg. So, so not necessarily an egg. Um, Well, if you look up some of the answers where it actually came from, what Humpty Dumpty is, some answers could be, we don't really know for sure, it could be a very, very powerful drink. A Humpty Dumpty, get your Humpty Dumpty here. (laughs) A reference, it could be a reference to King Richard III who had a hunchback, who had a hunchback and fell from power, from his authority. It could also be a warning for children not to sit at high places. Very good advice. But there's another theory, another theory that has stood out to me, and that is that Humpty Dumpty was a cannon. A cannon. In the 1640s, there was a civil war that took place in Great Britain. It was the English Civil War. And get this, there was a one-eyed gunner named Thompson, this guy named Thompson. And he had the idea to take a cannon 
get this, take a cannon and called Humpty Dumpty, nicknamed Humpty Dumpty, and they put it on the top of the wall tower of, get this, St. Mary at the Walls Church. They put this cannon on top of the church and they used that position all the way on the top of the wall of the church to angle down and to shoot the enemy. And once again, it's civil war going on. And they were shooting at the enemy, blowing up, wreaking destruction on the people below before eventually the return fire dislodged Humpty Dumpty from the wall. And what happened to Humpty Dumpty? The cannon, boom, fell off the wall of the church and was destroyed and they could not remount it. So what's also interesting is the earliest poem, the earliest version of the story written in 1797 that the ending line is a little bit different than what we just said. That it says four score men and four score more could not make Humpty Dumpty where he was before. Where he was before. See, Humpty Dumpty, it was not Humpty Dumpty's fault necessarily for falling off the wall. What was at fault was the position that Humpty Dumpty was in. In the version of the canon story, on the church, looking down at the world below, that it was in a place and a position it was never supposed to be in the first place. Are you tracking with me? A place and position. It's a terrible place for a gun, right? A heavy one. It's going to fall. See, the fall that we're experiencing is not the fall of Christianity. That's well and good. It's a fall of Christendom. Christendom, which is the elevation and prominence and power that Christianity has in a society. Perhaps this fall that we've experienced, we're experiencing, is actually a a way for us to get back to where we're supposed to be. Because I don't know about you, but when I look at scripture and I open the words of, of Jesus, one that stands out to me especially comes from John 12, 24, where Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, what does it do? It bears much fruit. It bears much fruit. So we're going to take a little bit of a journey today through this this question of Christendom, this great fall of Christendom, because I think it's important for us in order to track away forward, we have to look back. We have to do what one of my favorite songs says, turn back time for a little bit and reflect on where we've come from. And what I want to do is to look at in history two postures, two postures of Christianity, two postures that Christians have taken through the course of history. So first, first thing that we have to recognize is that Judaism, which, the root of Christianity is in Judaism. Jesus was Jewish. That Judaism and much of religion was based on a couple of things, had a couple of things involved. And the, the first was holy places, holy people, and holy books. And if you look at a lot of world religions, they tend to fit in those categories, that they have those. But what happens over time is that those things as well as the people that are using them for their faith, their concept of faith, it morphs into an institution, becomes solidified over time. That if a movement fails to, stops moving, then it turns into an institution. And, and pretty soon, that people involved in that institution discover that there's ways of using power to promote themselves. Um, there's all kinds of things that are going on, and that's what was happening in Judaism at the time that Jesus arrived on the scene. That if you remember back to the Christmas story, you know, we celebrated Christmas months ago, that everybody was expecting, you know, Jesus to arrive and to be this, this amazing king. But where did he arrive? In a stable, in a manger, to two poor people, right? It's not what you would expect the Messiah to be. And even when he enters into Jerusalem, you're expecting this king to overthrow all the Romans who were occupying the Jews at the time. He didn't do that. It's a different story that Jesus was writing. And when he entered the scene, he had a kind of a grassroots, apolitical posture. Uh, He had guys in his group, his groupies, his 12. They're from all different political parties, did you know? He invited them all to follow him because he did not ascribe to anyone. He spent most of his ministry in Galilee, the region of Galilee, not the the wealth of of the cities, but instead he also refused to coerce anybody to follow him. 
What did he always say? Come, follow me, right? There was an invitation that happened. See, Jesus offered a different way. He, he freed us from sin, but he also freed us, get this, from holy places, right? Who's the temple? We are. From, from priests, from having to go to somebody, offer a sacrifice. No, we can go straight to God. You can pray straight to God. You can have a relationship with God. He also freed us from those rituals. And dare I say, basically Christianity is the first and only religion that the world has ever known that is, was originally void of rituals, holy priests, and sacred buildings. And so that leads us to kind of that posture, that first posture of Christianity. is what I call an apostolic posture. The first couple centuries of Christianity and, and kind of an apostolic posture. Like, what, what is that? It's kind of defining the early church as being sent out. An apostle is someone who is sent, is sent out, is incarnational, is, is sent out. And so the community, the community that Jesus established, that, you know, when he, commanded, he commissioned his disciples and he left the scene and that we have Pentecost that takes place, boom, right? The Holy Spirit comes down and anoints these people. The community, the ecclesia, the church, was formed by choice, by people choosing to be a part of that, those groups. They were meeting in homes in the marketplace. They were going to, to these, these places and gathering and praying together and sharing in that community. Very much was like described like the sojourners that's going on. Like gathering together. And for the first 300 years, get this, there was no Bible. They didn't have a Bible. It wasn't like, hey, everybody gathered, sat around in a little circle and opened up. It opened up to John and everybody opened. There was no Bible for them to do that. There were letters circulating at the time. But what they did share was Jesus stories. That Jesus stories, whether they had seen him or that their granddaddy had seen him or that someone they knew had seen him who had seen him. Those types of things happened. And over the course of 50 years, 50 years, there were 7,000 Christians after 50 years after Jesus' resurrection. But then 250 years, and add another 200 years to that, there were over 6 million people who said that they were following Jesus, gathered in these little communities. See, it was impossible to be a Christian without being a part of a little community, without being a part of the ecclesia, that your confession of faith join you in that family. So Christianity was organic, not organizational. And the primary emphasis was based on the concept that Christ's kingdom was not of this world. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And these communities, they had an ordered way of life for those who decided to be a part of it, but they didn't judge those who were on the outside. They didn't look to them in judgment. Instead, they waited confidently for God to bring about the consummation of history. But they didn't feel any particular responsibility to help him do so. They trusted that he would do in his own time. And his, their role in the wider society what was their role? It was to bear witness to the kingdom of God and to invite anyone that was willing to come and join them in that. That was what they did. And it's interesting that historians, historians write of the unbelievable actions of Christians. Non-Christian historians write about the crazy actions of Christians, the confusing actions of Christians. Things like going to the places, this is once again under Roman occupation, going to the places that people would discard babies. They would literally, like, if you didn't want a child or you could, whatever, whatever the situation was, they had little spots in town that you would just poof, put the baby there. Well, guess what? The Christians, they visited them all the time and they took them all in. And the Romans are like scratching their heads like, why are you all doing that? What's, what's with that, right? What's crazy? Women, uh, widows, you know, at that time, a, a woman was a little bit more than a piece of property. Well, if you lost your husband in that situation, it was a really difficult spot. The Christians... They adopted, they brought these women into their homes and families and took care of them. And everybody's looking around saying, what are these people doing? They're crazy. They're crazy. And get this, even the years later, the Romans, the Romans saw the, the lives of the Christians and the ways that they treated one another and acted morally. And the Romans, they tried to legislate those attitudes of morality. They tried to legislate, but ultimately... They failed. <laughs> they failed to legislate. For Christians, it was not about being forced to do or told to do, but it was a heart matter. It came from the inside out. 
And that was how they viewed life. That was how they viewed the world around them. They viewed cultural hostility towards them as opportunity, as an opportunity, embracing even the places in the margins as places where Jesus was already at work and they could step in to join him. That was where they were. And one of the greatest turning points actually in the spread of Christianity is found in Acts chapter eight. That, that after these little churches are springing up, there's, there's a great persecution that wipes across the land. And that starts with Stephen, right? Stephen's a follower of Jesus. He's stoned and I'm not like, not like the smoking thing or whatever, but he's stoned in a different way, like the hard rock thing, like to death. And what happens after that is Acts 8 tells us that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered, scattered, preached the word wherever they went. Philip, Philip, I love Philip. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, the place you're not supposed to go, and he proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Think about that. Think about apostolic, an apostolic posture embraces scattering as being sent by God. At seeing scattering as a movement and an opportunity of God, not dependent on structures of power, not just dependent on even human authority, but rather the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Allowing the Holy Spirit to lead into God, embracing the posture of Christ, the posture of Christ who not emphasizes great power and authority, but instead uses his power, what, to do this, to serve from beneath. To that power that's expressed in weakness. And they began to be known, the scripture says, for healing, for loving, and for sacrifice, rather than coercion and being forced to follow. And so at that time, there were no half-hearted converts. There were no half-hearted converts. And the thing is, you can tell in life, when things get rough, you can tell who's in and who's out, right? I mean, take it for instance, are you a Wild fan? Will you still be a Wild fan if they never make it to the Stanley Cup? I know that was a little dig there. I'm sorry for those. But, but seriously, like if your favorite team like never makes it to the championship, are you still game? Will you still stick it out? Amen. Right? When those things... <laughs> Thank you there. Amen to that. But, but seriously, when you get to that point, like you can tell who's in and who's out, who's really in when things get hard. Will you stand it out? Will you work towards that? Will you pray, right? <laughs> Will you keep praying? See, in apostolic times, there were only dropouts. There were only dropouts. There were no half-hearted converts. That, that's the temptation, though, in apostolic times, is to drop out. To drop out when things get too hard. And, and things continue to get harder, we're told. Reflecting back to history, there was a great persecution that took place in the year 111. There's a guy named Pliny the Younger. He was not very young, by the way. But Pliny, he was the governor of this region called Bithynia, and he was executing Christians left and right. Some days because he just felt like it. Well, he was encountered by the emperor at the time, Emperor Trajan, and he, Trajan, went to him to calm him down and to say, hey, you know what, uh, you know what, Pliny, just like only kill the Christians if they do something wrong. Like just don't like pick and choose and just, if they stir up trouble, then go ahead and do it. But just like, don't like make trouble out of the situation. But in, then moving on in another 200 years in February 303, we have these co-emperors on the scene, Diocletian and Galerius. When the worst, the very worst of all persecutions that Christians have ever encountered took place. And so people were being killed left and right. But then Galerius, interesting enough, he continued the persecution until the year 311 when he was stricken by a painful disease. 
And that was claimed by the, the church historian Eusebius later on as an act of revenge from God. <laughs> they looked on that, you know, huh, that's interesting, right? And Galerius died just after that. But then the following year, following year, prior to a battle against a rival emperor, we have a man named Constantine who appears on the scene. And Constantine, the emperor, getting ready to face this battle, he has a vision, a vision one day, a vision of a cross in the heavens with the words, in this sign, conquer. A vision. And that leads him to victory. Leads him to victory, but after the victory, he decides that, that he, as well as his empire, would therefore be embracing the sign of the cross in Christianity. And he decided that to join together with another emperor, Licinius, in 313, and issued what's called the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan, which was a manifesto that, of toleration that granted Christians full legal rights. And not only that, but made Christianity the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire. The beginning of Christendom. Not just for a position of favor with the state, though, but it became the chosen instrument for political regeneration. And that's the change from the apostolic posture to Christianity went to a Christendom posture under Constantine. A Christendom posture that has gone through the years even till now. And overnight, Christianity became the, the favored recipient of imperial limitless resources. That monies that were dedicated to building pagan temples were then dedicated to building, you know what? Church buildings. The first church buildings were constructed. And actually, it, all, these, all these things were taking place that, that this, these churches began to be built. And the Roman spirit continued to legislate morality as well, thinking that's in line with what the Christians followed. They legislated, that made adultery illegal. They had inheritance laws. And they were just aiming to maintain and to influence all areas of society from politics, education, medicine, the arts, all these things. And, and even the major institutions that would, would drive the industry and, and education, they began to reflect God's name and the name of Jesus. And they even referred to him in their constitutions and their policies. But in the church itself, the ecclesia, Discipleship, which had taken place in those little circles and homes at the time before, that discipleship began to be equated with membership and attendance. That if you showed up to one of these buildings and you were a part of that and you paid your dues, then you were good. And so discipleship, even commitment to God's glory, began to be reduced and equated with being a contributing member of society. And that's what happened. Christendom, though, I have to say, is not without its merits. There were some good things that took place, took value of people, elevated life overall. There's many hospitals. A lot of our medicine has, has roots in Christendom. People taking care of people, hospitals being built, uh, widows and, and children uh, having all these, these positions that are kind of being elevated in society. But, but the thing is, for too long, the big C church has believed Constantine was great for Christianity. For too long, we've believed that Constantine was great for Christianity, but to the contrary, Christendom eroded many of the attractive and dynamic aspects and turned it into an institution with what? Holy buildings, sacred people, and ritual. And this focus and, and, and all the state funding that had been, been devoted before is now going to the church and assuming that strength and power are indicative of being with God. That you're favored by God if you are gaining strength and power and things are going well for you. People began to believe that rather than even in the face of persecution that God is being with you through that. So buildings were erected. Clergy was rising to the top to be that go-between between the unholy people and the holy God and began to coerce or people being born into Christianity without even knowing who Jesus was. 
And I don't think there's, there's a, not a, probably a better, there's probably a better um, illustration of this, but the one that really has stuck out to me came several months ago when I had the opportunity to visit Israel. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to do that. If you do at some point, I highly recommend it. It's amazing to walk the places that Jesus walked and, and visited and just even just seeing the landscape and, and the people there. And um, when people ask me, especially when I first got back, how was your trip, right? How was your trip? What, what, what did you learn? Well, I kind of summarized it in one line. It was about touching all the things, if you go to Israel, you'll, you'll t really, really get that. Basically, you would visit a holy site and you would see a spot where the angel Gabriel supposedly appeared to Mary and you would touch it. You got like five seconds to do so before they like moved you on, right? The next person got to touch it too. And then you go to the next site and guess what? Touch that, touch that. Sometimes I don't even know what I was touching anymore. <laughs> I have pictures and I'm like, where was I touching in that one, right? But it was like touching all these holy places. And, and just a little side note, a lot of the holy sites in the Holy Land, they were actually identified by Constantine's mother who visited the Holy Land and went there right after her son had this, this vision and everything. And she went there and she picked out the sites. So they could be the sites. They may not be the sites. Some people get really caught up in that. I was like, well, it's somewhere around here, right? It doesn't matter if that's, that might be the rock. That might not be the rock. That's okay. We're in the same vicinity. But she picked out those sites. And, and the church, one of the places that we visited was called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem, in the old city. And the church was supposedly, once again, Constantine's mom pointed out the place where Jesus was crucified and where he was buried. And you can visit those sites within this great big church. And it's beautiful, I have to say. There's paintings everywhere. There's murals. There's jewels hanging from the ceiling. There's gold. There's all this stuff. It's a little bit reminiscent of Monty Python in a way. <laughs> and you walk through these, this building, and of course, the crowds are upon you. There's people just everywhere, people pushing. But what's interesting about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's actually owned by six different groups of Christians. Six the Roman Catholics, the Greek Orthodox, the Arminian Apostolics, the Coptics, the Syriacs, and the Ethiopian Orthodox. They all own this church and run it. And, and they came to an agreement years and years and years ago, an agreement that said because they all have kind of ownership of this church, they made a, a statement that said, and an understanding that said that no changes can be made to it unless all six agree to the change. You want to know what that agreement is called? The status quo. That's where we get that, that phrase from, by the way. It's called the status quo. The status quo. About not making any change, right? It's that changes are so hard to make. And, and after I was touring and touching all the things, I think we have a picture of what, the, of what that looks like, uh, touching all the things, there came a point that you're kind of overwhelmed by the number of people that are there and you just have to escape for a little bit. So we, a group of us went to the courtyard, which is once again, a beautiful little area. And we were just like sitting there hanging out with our tour guide for a little bit. And I remember like looking up to this one area up, uh, it was uh, another, um, uh, it was a raised area that had a, a little window with a ladder next to it. I remember sitting there looking and seeing this ladder that was leaned against the window. And since we were just sitting there kind of killing time, resting for a couple of minutes, our, our tour guide, he said, you want to know the significance? I see you see that ladder. You want to know the significance of the ladder? It's a crazy story. It's called the immovable ladder. It's been there since 1728. Why? Well, all six groups of Christians haven't been able to agree to move it. <laughs> no changes have been made. The only thing that has taken place are lots and lots of fights between groups, even to the point that there were uh, several priests that were once locked inside. They had forgotten the time that the place was supposed to be closed for the night, and they were locked inside, and people from the outside began to come and worry about them. They were like hoisting up some food through those windows to feed them, and they wouldn't share. They wouldn't share. You wouldn't have one group, the apostolics, they, they, they went against the, the um, Roman Catholics, and it was just like crazy, just fights that continued. And, and for some of you, maybe that's why you're on the edge of Christianity, or you've been disillusioned, because that's what you've seen, and that's what you've experienced. And what's also interesting is, you know who has keys to the place? 
a Muslim family. <laughs> yeah, you, really, you're like, you can't make this stuff up. Like, you know, a Muslim family. I mean, I think it's a great illustration, a great picture of the Church of Christendom. Like, I remember standing there in that, that courtyard after I heard this ladder story, I'm like scratching my head, I'm like, is, is this place demonstrative of the self-sacrificial love of this carpenter from Nazareth who I worship? All the jewels and the, the gold and these people pushing and then there's like smoke and you have to move out of the way for the next priest coming in from one of the six denominations. It's just crazy. And we have to question ourselves. Is this exactly what Jesus would want? And now we see the great fall of Christendom. The great fall of that elevation in power and authority. And, and historians are, scholars aren't really sure when it actually began per se. Some say that it started at the beginning of the 20th century or maybe in the 1960s, kind of the decline of the church and people falling away, uh, maybe speeding up in the 1990s and then the kind of the fast forward button hit when COVID hit. But, but basically this time though, perhaps allows for a yard sale of stuff that's gotten in the way of following Jesus. In the case against Christendom, a church aligned with worldly power, isn't really just a historical one, but I think it's also a biblical, so, so, sociological one that's based in who Jesus is and who is witnessed in the Bible and a result of how God has chosen to work in the world. God's chosen to use the, 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 the lowly. God has chosen to use humility. God has chosen not to have this position of pride. See, Christendom, though, is not just about those people. It's about us, too. It cuts through all of us. That, that we get into fights, whether in person or usually on Facebook, on social media, right? About, okay, well, we need more of this, so you should legislate that. You know, this is my politician. This is mine. And, and we get lost in it, too. And we fight, and there was a story recently uh, that was posted on um, one of the social media accounts by a friend of mine that, that talked about how uh, there's these two Canadian and British journalists who decided to collect the 50 most important documents of civilization. And they put together this collection and they made this list, this very like, famous list to go through. And my friend had posted this. And among those famous documents are Anne Frank's diary, the Odyssey, Woodstock tickets, but there was no Bible, no Bible. And as is the case, usually even more interesting than the article that's being posted is the comments that you can read underneath the article that's being posted. And I remember reading through the comments, the kind of reactions to that. And there were many people that were bemoaning, once again, the loss of Christendom. Oh my gosh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and it's just awful and things, I can't imagine that they wouldn't even recommend that to people that were just like, well, maybe they just forgot, right? You know, who knows? But, but then there were somebody else that interjected though and said, yes. We're back to the margins and we're back to the very place where the significance and power of Jesus can be felt in a real way. And I saw that and I was like, wow, these are different, right? <laughs> these are different reactions. I mean, we can bemoan the generation and we could say how sad and what a darkened mind we have, or we could say, yes, what an opportunity. What if the fall of Christendom is actually great? What if the fall of Christendom is actually a great thing? To return to the character and hum humble posture of Christ. To return to the apostolic posture that the early church took on, despite the persecution, despite being oppressed. I, I mean, even Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my what? weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amazing. That, that if the fall of Christendom is actually great, moving forward, though, we do have to change our posture and I think I'm going to give you four things real quickly, four things real quickly about what we can embrace about this time and place that we find ourselves. And the first is to embrace being scattered. 
to embrace being scattered. Send us out of our buildings and our structures to take the institution and move it back to a movement. The ecclesia was, is a people, not buildings, is, is a people. And also the kingdom isn't about land either. It's about people. The people, right? That many people in our lives are simply unaware. We're in a time and a place that many people, you know, their parents didn't go to church, their grandparents didn't go to church. Like, we can't look down on them for that. But we can address questions, we can build relationships, you know, something that they might not even know that much about. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15 was actually a passage, a key passage for the early church to tell what they believe in. But it always starts in relationships, being scattered into relationships. And I want to challenge you, a, a, a challenge, a small challenge. What if it would mean inviting two people over to your house for dinner and starting there? Once again, not boil in the ocean, <laughs> starting small, relationship by relationship, embracing the scatteredness, but also embracing the work of the spirit in community. Community, the power of community, the depth of Christian community. See, the early church didn't try to transform its culture by getting into arguments about what the government should do. They knew that they would lose that battle. Instead, they focused on building community and allowing community to be the leaven that would transform the culture around them simply by being there, by being a part of it. But then embracing the margins, embracing the margins where I believe the spirit, the Holy Spirit speaks the loudest on the margins in the places where, where the Holy Spirit's work is greatest among the neglected, those who are put to the side, those who are ostracized, those who are discriminated against. That's the posture of love on the cross when we love and we serve people where they are. And one way that I've seen this happen, both in my own church, in my own life, as well as with our, the greater movement of fresh expressions around the country, was through starting this, these dinner churches. And um, there's a guy I work with with Fresh Expressions. His name is Verlin Fosner. He's based out of Seattle. And he has a very interesting story. He was a pastor of a church that voted to close. They were a little dying congregation. But when they closed, just like that piece, that, that piece of wheat, they birthed 12 dinner churches in the secular city of Seattle. 12. And at this point, here they are, I think like maybe eight, 10 years later, there's like 100 of them that are going on. And you know what dinner church connects with? It's basically dinner, you know, and then having a gathering that's in an informal setting and have it, sharing dinner and a, a story of Jesus and having people ask questions. And he's found that the majority of the people that are attending and that are joining these communities are single, are coming from disenfranchised or disadvantaged backgrounds, are widows or widowers, are people who are lonely, even though they may have the, the economic status, that he's seeing that these are the people that are on the margins. And we've seen that in my own setting. Last fall, we decided to start our own dinner church in, uh, just right outside of Harrisburg. And we meet in a, in a community room at a public facility that actually, the, once again, this is a, a public area. They've, their council voted to give us the building for free to do this. And so we gather once a month around tables. Right now we're doing once a month and we're seeing the same thing. These people that will never come to church, even how great your coffee is or how great the message is and the music is, they're not going to come, but they will come to dinner. They will meet around a table. You will be able to build a relationship to embrace those places. And I'm seeing the spirit at work ahead of us. I'm seeing the, the spirit at work drawing us to partner with her, right? With the spirit, with the spirit's work ahead of us. But also, last and not least, it's a call to embrace and allow the spirit to work. To allow, not coerce, but allow. That we really need to lead people to change their love, to love something different. Because love is what draws and holds people. And that's the spirit work that we're partnering with. You know, what if this time that we find ourselves in right now is not the ending, but it's a great beginning. A great beginning and a new adventure of the 21st century church, just like the first century church. Well, speaking of adventure, just want to close with a story here. A story that 
um, took place in the 15th, started in the 15th century all the way through the 19th. A story when uh, this region of the world in North America was being explored and encountered and, and tr places trying to be found. It's a story of a man named John, John Ross and the discovery of the Northwest Passage. And so since the end of the 15th century, people had been trying to find this Northwest Passage, this way to, for goods and services to be transported around the world. We have a little map for you that, that kind of shows what that looks like. And so in December of 1817, the British, the British wanted to try again. And so their, um, their, their forces decided to send ships to the Arctic to find if it was possible to locate this, this way of travel. And so to do so, they called up this man who was a military officer, his name was John Ross, and he was an expert at the time. Uh, so he and his men on the ships, they went to the Arctic, they're sailing around, uh, they got to very icy parts of the ocean, because believe it or not, there are places icier in the winter and in the summer than Minnesota, right? And so they sailed up that way, and when, what they encountered was, at that point, the ocean turned into a slog of ice. You know, that kind of mixture between it's ice, but it's water, and it's just very difficult for the ships to go. And by mid-August, though, when things were starting to thaw out, that they out encountered this, this region called the Lancaster Sound, which is a channel between two islands that we now know provides an eastern entrance to the Northwest Passage but they didn't know that. So on August 31st in 1818, it was a very, very foggy, kind of rainy day. And Ross, he was at dinner and he was called away from dinner because the fog had started to clear. So he walks onto the deck, looks out on the horizon, looks around, and what does he see right in front of him, or he says he does, are mountains. He sees mountains straight up ahead. And he says this in his journal, he says, I distinctly saw the land round the bottom of the bay, forming a connected chain of mountains with those who extended along the north and the south sides. And he said, his reflection, it is evident that it must be forever unnavigable. A failed voyage, a failed voyage after all. He saw the mountains turn off the deck, walked off the deck. And then without asking anyone else's perception or opinion, or anyone else to even look, he ordered the crew to head back home. He turned around. And of course, on all accounts, he was incorrect. Totally incorrect. There were no mountains. It was just haze. It was just haze that was building up into piles, and there's kind of a, a scientific word for it that I don't know. But, but in that case, he had seen something that wasn't there. And so one of his crew members, in the next year, William Perry headed back and he trailed straight through the supposed mountains and he discovered the Northwest Passage, which is now called the Perry Channel after him. So what happened? Scholars and historians have scratched their heads. Why did Ross give up so easily? Well, the reason was because he had formed a preconceived idea of what the Northwest Passage was supposed to be like. He had not seen the way that was through because he had pictured in his head what it was supposed to look like. The way through had been all there all along. It just looked a little bit different. See, friends, the fall of Christendom can look like Christianity is a failed voyage. That there's mountains ahead that we cannot traverse and we might as well pack our bags and go home and shake our fists in the process, right? But what if we're seeing it all wrong? What if we're seeing it all wrong? What if it's about seeing a new old way that's been there all along, a way that not rejoices in worldly power, but in God's? A way that sees the harvest as plentiful and the laborers are few and darkness as the best place for a light to shine? What if it's a way that gets back to the character of the crucified Christ? of one of peace and sacrifice and love, a way that chooses not to worship the power of political office, but rather that of our crucified Jesus. Amen. See friends, we're in a new world as well. We're explorers on a new adventure, one that we are sent into and we can bemoan the great fall of Christendom or we can release it 
and see the adventure ahead. And what we do with that, it's up to you. Will you hunker down and try to rebuild or try to rebuild Christendom? Or will you embrace being scattered as being sent? Will, will you look at the people who are cu more curious than ever who are around you? And will you recognize that maybe Christianity will look a little bit different than it did in the past? But I do want to say a special word to you, to you who are on the margins, to you that are not sure of this faith, they're not sure of Jesus. Maybe you're in the process of deconstructing. I want to say a special word to you because for too long, Christians have told you, you need us. But I dare say, we need you. We need you. As we explore, as we move forward, we need you for this new adventure as guides and shapers and pioneers and translators. And if you didn't fit into the church of Christendom, that's great news. Because we need you even more than ever. So it's the great fall of Christendom, not great for its bigness, but great for maybe its impact. We're all a part of the story, but we get to choose. What part of that story will we be? Will we turn around or will we forge ahead with new eyes and new insight and look for the future is ahead? Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you so much for your movement and for, for coming to us, Lord, for, for being a part of this world and, and all its messed up factors, Lord, and not giving up on us in spite of us. Lord, help us to realign and to reorient ourselves in your direction. As the great church, Lord, as the, the big C church, as your people who you have called together, Lord, that we would humble ourselves. We would see you move even in ways that we have not seen. But we would also release our expectations of how we think and we want you to act and do. And God, we submit ourselves to you today. We confess to you the ways that we've held to our own plans. We've held to our own visions. We've held to our own ideas, Lord. Help us to release them, to lay them at your feet and to look up. And Lord, I pray that to those who are deconstructing and figuring out what they believe and, and all this is so much to take in, Lord, I hope that and I pray that you would tap them on the shoulder and remind them, yes, we need you. You're needed here. You're needed now. For such a time as this, you are called to be a follower. You are called to be a part of this movement that started 2,000 years ago in the following of Jesus a movement that continues to move, a movement that continues to change and transform the world, a movement that is part of your kingdom here and now. And Lord, help us to do so. Help us to see you. Help us to know and grow in you more, Lord, to sink roots deep. And most of all, to know that we are loved. And God, I thank you and I praise you. And God, I love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.